So hello everyone and uh, good evening or afternoon or morning. I'd like to offer some reflections again this evening after our practice today and our engagement and again I've just been really deeply touched by the sincerity, the courage, the dignity and the nobility with which you are engaging in this process, in this retreat, in the encounter with your life, with that, all of us, with our lives as we are. There's something profoundly enriching and uplifting about sharing this exploration, about being connected with others as we go through this time, which I'm deeply grateful for. And today, I guess in our culture, and not just our culture, this is a day that's regarded as a holy day, Easter Sunday. I didn't grow up in a culture of, although I grew up in a society that was quite Christian, my family culture wasn't at all religious or my, my parents weren't from Christian backgrounds at all. But uh, nonetheless, it's part of what's here, and I think it's a useful frame to hold around some of what I'd like to speak about. In terms of the Buddha's teachings, the reference to the qualities of our heart that we can develop are understood as something divine, something blessed, beautiful, holy, we could say. We've talked about the cultivation of loving-kindness and friendliness, about compassion, and touched on the cultivation of appreciative joy and equanimity also in different ways through the guided meditations and reflections. And I'd just like to offer a few thoughts on these four beautiful and blessed and, as we say in the tradition, divine abidings, places that are holy, in our hearts and that in a way express a sense of what we attribute often to the gods, divinity, but in fact is an expression of the, the profound beauty of our own possibilities when made manifest, when brought more fully into being in our lives, our hearts and our world. And in this time of the coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic. We so deeply need these qualities of heart, it seems to me, and I'm sure not just to me. So this quality of, of metta, of kindness, of friendliness, just some of the essential elements of what it, what it speaks to for me, uh, the sense of treating others as we wish to be treated ourselves. to relate to others, to oneself, to our own experience with kindness and to see what that is, how we can sometimes recognize the need for kindness and relating with others, but perhaps not see it's equally important in how we relate to ourselves, how we meet our own ex experience, the very willingness to open to what's happening right here even when it's not comfortable or easy, is an expression of kindliness, of care, of acceptance. And something that allows us actually to feel welcome and appreciated when we honour and welcome our own experience. It's actually a great gift we can give to ourselves. And this quality is understood as caring for, having this wish to care for, not just in terms of looking after, but in terms of feeling the heart's movement of well-wishing as a mother or as a parent would care for their child in, in what we would understand to be a, a healthy and optimal situation. It's not always that it happens perfectly this way. And, and the Buddha speaks of this in the, the, the image of a mother or a parent who would protect with their life their child, their only child. And this sense we have when we 
when we really understand the preciousness of life and our depth of connection to it, which, of course, is perhaps most easily accessible in that relationship of parent to child. The preciousness of the life, the connection to the life is so deep, so clear. We might give our life or sacrifice our comfort or our well-being for this other person, this being, or these others. And it, it comes, it seems to me, at its root from an understanding that this place of loving kindness and deep friendliness, this comes from a place of seeing whatever we see, whoever we see, another being, ourselves, more obviously, but other beings as not separate from ourselves, not holding ourselves apart from others or from parts of ourselves. And this is a profound embodiment of wisdom, of understanding our not separate nature. So that just as we care for our own well-being, we care for the well-being of others. And we sometimes think about this tradition as a wisdom tradition. It's used to, we call you know, Buddhism a, a wisdom path or a wisdom tradition. And, and yet, of course, kindness is at the very heart of what this means. And it's interesting and instructive, I think, when... When Ananda, the Buddha's disciple, close disciple, his friend, his translator, or not so much translator, but the one who remembered all his teachings um, and who was his, also his cousin, when he heard that the Buddha had died, his response through his tears and his sorrow was to say, not who is this profound, wise, awakened teacher. No, that's not what he said. What he said was, he was so kind to me. That's, that's what was left. That's how Ananda had been touched by his contact through many, many years and decades with the Buddha. And I think this understanding that wisdom expresses itself not just as freedom and inner peace, but as embodied kindness. This is something I think helpful and important to contemplate. And the second of these divine, these holy, these noble abodes or dwelling places of the heart is compassion, karuna. And I, I know Ruh spoke some and shared some of the practice with regard to this, this beautiful realm of development in the afternoon. This quality of sensitivity, anukampa, that resonates, that trembles with the tenderness of human life and human experience, and the quality of karuna that has as an expression some form of engagement or action or possibly a restraining of an action, but there's something active about it. It's not just the resonance and the caring, which is what compassion might translate literally as in English, feeling with or feeling the suffering with compassion but that sense of refraining from harm or acting to relieve suffering. This is, this is karuna. And there can be a fierceness in compassion, as we were speaking about this afternoon with one of the questions. I can't remember if it was in the group or the Q&A, but this, this quality of a fierce compassion where we're actively engaged to stop further harm or ongoing harm that's taking place. And it may sometimes be accompanied by a quality that looks a bit like anger, but it's important to discern that outrage, this quality of fierce and powerful energy arising in us that says, no, this is not acceptable. This must be addressed or stopped when something is harmful that brings appropriate protest and, in fact, addressing to the cause of harm, saying this is not appropriate behavior. This is actually an act of kindness. And the Buddha, um, he once commented on this process whereby if, if a student wasn't really following his guidance over time, he said, eventually I might be forced to kill the student. Now, that's a bit shocking. We think the Buddha surely didn't break the precepts, did he? And no, not literally. But what he meant by that was he would stop instructing and equally stop admonishing. So to stop offering guidance to the student, but also to stop pointing out to the student where their behavior was unskillful. 
And so we can see that it's an act of kindness to point out to people where their behavior is unskillful. And sometimes you might need to do this among friends or in our workplaces, our communities, or in our society and our world. And I was remembering very, oh gosh, I was deeply touched in the remembrance today as Easter Sunday of this Easter week last year, where I, together with a community of hundreds of committed and deeply caring people, spent the week protesting in London as part of the Extinction Rebellion protests. And I was on Waterloo Bridge for that week, protesting, calling for action from the government in relationship to the climate and ecological emergency engaged in civil disobedience and a form of, I would say, fierce compassion, courageous compassion to, to call attention to where there is harm and danger taking place. And one year ago, we was the last of that, the last day of that week we spent on Waterloo Bridge and we actually had a, uh, a sermon from, or not so much a sermon, but a, an offering to our community from the the vicar of the church, or the canon as he was, Canon Giles, from the church of St. John's of Waterloo, who came and supported us and encouraged us in our action. And this, it's kind of, I was reflecting, just considering karuna, this, uh, this quality that calls us also to stand up and to act for the welfare and the well-being of others and the world. And the Buddha talked about it in the way that a mother or, again, a parent who, standing outside the door in which their child, of the room in which their child was resting, how if someone should come towards that room wishing to harm the child, the parent would just say, no, there is no way you're coming through this door. Nothing personal. I don't, it's not like, I don't like you. I'm not going to attack you but there's no way I'm going to let you harm my child. That kind of fierceness is this quality of karuna, of compassion in action, engaged responsiveness. And I, I sort of was reflecting that maybe something we might discover in this time is, and it's a terrible pun, I know, but something in the way of a coronavirus, in which there might be an infectious recognition of the need for social justice for climate justice, for justice in all the forms in which there is injustice and the courage to call out injustice where we see it. And it's interesting seeing in the media, religious, political and social leaders recognising the injustices in our society being amplified in this time of pandemic. And what might it be for us to find a, an infectious sharing of karuna, compassion for the healing, for the protection, for the restitution of injustice and for true equality for all human beings and all beings, in fact. This is something of a vision we could aspire to. And perhaps it's no accident that corona and karuna have a little in common. In fact, coronavirus refers to the, the crown, I think. And again, that sense of, of something we might look up to. We call royalty in our culture, but royalty has its potency again by its connection with divinity, by what is divine, what is noble, what is blessed and beautiful. And so there is something about this quality of compassion that is blessed in this way, beautiful in this way. I'd like to speak also just a little about appreciative joy, mudita. This quality of uplift that we can find in our hearts that, that comes from attending to, from allowing ourselves to connect with what is blessed, what is beautiful, what is lovely, what is wholesome seeing the truth of this too. Just as there is suffering, just as there is injustice and pain, 
There is also that which is beautiful and to allow our hearts to be uplifted by contact with that. And to see how it's something that happens perhaps more easily in the, in the simplicity of our lives when we slow down, when we train in attentiveness, when we train in sensitivity and in presence as we are doing and in openness of heart. There's a, there's a sweetness that comes just from simple contact with a leaf on a tree or the sound of a bird that we might not otherwise have paid attention to. And this, this quality of connection, of presence that's uplifting, that as we start to touch into it more and more, we realize there's a richness here that we can know more deeply. And we see that this uplifting of the heart, it's not from things we have, it's not from possessions. It's not so much from what we do or what we produce. The deeper joy, of course, comes from, from that depth of connection. And yet we can also take joy in the happiness and the good fortune of anyone who has good fortune, not just ourselves. To be happy also for those who have good things in their lives. This is a, a beautiful training. And yet to know in the depth that what gives us greatest happiness is not those things, not necessarily even particular conditions, but something closer to us, perhaps deeper. There's a beautiful story of a Sufi master who led her community of students who were very devoted, very firmly and fiercely, and they were very um, strongly, not just requested, but required to live in a very simple way. And this master, every Saturday in the morning, she would go down to the market in the village and spend all day, then come back in the evening with a big smile on her face. And one day, one of her students got up the courage to ask her and said, Master, Master, you tell us about simplicity and how happiness comes from, from, from renunciation. But every weekend we see you going down to the market and you come back with a big smile. We don't understand. And she, she looked at the student and the community who were there and she said, yes, yes, I do. In fact, I must say it gives me great joy to see all the things I am happy without. And this, this quality of joy that finds well-being, not from possessions, not from productivity, which of course both have their place, but from something deeper than this. We see in this time, this is not just a time of death and loss, although it is that. It is also a time of miracles, of blessedness, the kindness between strangers on the street at a good six feet, two meters distance sometimes. The sacrifice of the people working in the health systems to protect and to care for others at the risk of their own lives and for some of them at the loss of their own lives. Profound sacrifice for our well-being. And But uplifting and beautiful, equally as tragic and sad, to see that nobility and courage. And for myself and maybe for some others of you, some friends recently, just in the first week of the lockdown, a baby born, healthy and beautiful, a miracle in the lockdown. And just to feel that, to really let that in too, is so important for us. And the fourth of the divine abidings, the Brahma Viharas, the abidings of the the noble ones, is equanimity or upekka. And it's something which sometimes I think we can not quite understand so easily. It's a little less obvious, perhaps. It doesn't mean somehow calm or tranquility, that nothing's going on. Equanimity is the capacity to stay grounded in the face of the waves, the turbulence and the winds of our lives understanding that these are an inevitable part of all of our journeys. And it's certainly not something that's easy for us. 
In fact, there's a poem that speaks to this rather clearly to my mind, and it's called If. It's, I guess, modelled on the rather famous poem by Rudyard Kipling, which is rather different about all the noble things it takes to be a, a man, according to the author. But nonetheless, it's, it's, I think, rather instructive. So it's entitled If, and I don't, it's, I don't know the author. It says, if you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbours travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, and always fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill. If you can always find contentment just where you are. You are probably a dog. Now, it's always a risk telling a funny story when everyone's muted. Because I don't know whether you laughed or you groaned. But that's okay. I can live with that. I find it amusing. And touching also because... Interestingly, sometimes our four-legged companions seem to be more able to be at ease in the midst of the turbulence of their lives than we ourselves. And that's not something to judge ourselves about, but more just to see that, oh, yeah, this is something we learn. It takes time to develop, to be grounded, to be steady in the midst of the storm. It requires both an understanding of conditionality, that we recognize that we are not in control of life, and yet there is still a lawfulness to it. That how we are, ourselves and each other, how we are has a relationship to the way we experience our lives. And that through cultivating and training the heart and the mind, we can transform this. We can learn what it means to have deep roots in presence, in immediacy, in embodied life. Like the keel of a boat, that part that protrudes from the hull, the bottom of the boat, deep into the water, that allows the boat to stay upright in strong wind and enables the boat to steer because it gives it purchase in the water amidst the storms and the wind and the current. This quality of having a rootedness, this vertical dimension of touching in, not just to our bodies, but the earth, which is our larger body, which our body emerges out of and rests upon for its existence. Feeling that rootedness, that depth, and finding our way back to this again and again in the face of the waves, the turbulence, the ripples, of worldly conditions, and equally of our own emotional processes that can be quite storm-like at times. Coming back into this again and again, we start to find a trust, a capacity to rest in the midst of it all, not untouched by it, but not blown off course not losing our ground. <clears throat> Rumi speaks, I think, a little of this understanding in a poetry entitled Buoyancy, of which the latter part goes like this. He writes, Praise the ocean. What we say, a little ship. So the sea journey goes on, and who knows where. Just to be held by the ocean is the best of luck we could have. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy, but let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you. The buoyancy. This that we are has the nature of finding its own buoyancy, its own ground, we could say, in the nature of what is, because they are not different. What it is that we are 
and what it is that we're in are not of a different nature. And therefore, we can understand our life as floating at the same time as deeply grounded. Buoyancy is that quality, I think, where we rest deeply in the fluidity of life and can come to trust our way, that we can find our way amidst it. And this again is a beautiful quality of heart that we can learn, that we can develop, that we can grow in. And that helps us to hold our ground in the turbulent times that we find ourselves in. And with all of these qualities, what's I think really important to remember is that it's not that we're somehow required. I just need to uh, actually, I had an app on my computer that was about to um, start doing things because somebody else seemed to be engaging with. And so I was attempting to breathe out, keep talking and manipulate my system all at once. And I couldn't. So um, a great opportunity there as I'm talking about equanimity and the world jumped onto my screen with some messaging because I forgot to turn WhatsApp off before I began this talk. It's like that sometimes, isn't it? Something just jumps into our consciousness and, whoa, what do I do with this? <sighs> Breathe out. And here we are. So I mentioned as I began, today is a holy day in the, in the Christian culture perhaps the holiest of days, Easter Sunday. And we're in the midst of a season of holy days, of course, across different traditions, which we may have differing degrees of connection to. But for myself, I just want to name that uh, in the Hindu tradition, just a few days ago on the 8th of April, was the, the day of marking and celebrating Hanuman, and Hanuman, the monkey god, represents, and I'm not an expert on, on the tradition or, or, or Hanuman, but he, a, a beautiful quality of devoted service that seems very relevant in our time, that selflessness of giving up one's own priorities and one's own preferences in order to serve what one loves most deeply. And uh, I mentioned the the Hindu tradition and Hanuman, because for me, this is also part of my heritage, being one quarter Bengali. My grandmother, who is Bengali from Calcutta, who's still alive, aged 103, and remarkably still going slowly but strong, it seems. And her life and so much devotion in her own journey to serving both the communities of India of underprivileged people in the Savadaya movement as a follower of Gandhi, as she was, and in her time living in Europe, having married a, uh, a Swedish man, how just even in her 80s, she travelled to the, 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 the regions in what was previously Yugoslavia, the, the war zones, bringing cows to the women who'd been left impoverished widowed and isolated with a charity, the Dandelion Trust, and just how much she's given in terms of service touches me always when I think of her life. And this, this quality in the, uh, in the tradition of, of the, the Hindu community. And excuse me if I haven't expressed it as fully as I could have, if I'd, I, I didn't grow up with that tradition, but that, that's something that's there for me. And, and likewise, as we're here in this time of retreat, and this time of lockdown at the same time, there's a, there's a kind of restraint to having to do without, a simplifying. And retreat has the sense for me of a spiritual fasting. So I also am called to reflect on the, the, the beautiful tradition of Islam, of Ramadan, which begins in just a few days on the 23rd of April for a month. And what it is to undertake the challenging practice of fasting, to partake of the fast as I understand the intentions, and I'm sure there'll be many, but that some of the primary intentions are to purify the mind and to come closer to Allah, 
and the sense of wanting to come close to the beloved, understanding that a purifying of our heart and mind, a cleansing, a clearing, a simplifying is part of that. And to come closer to the beloved, come closer to Allah. I'd like to share a poem by Rabia of Basra, an 8th century Islamic woman saint. And Rabia writes, she says, die before you die. Ironic, but one of the most intimate acts of our body is death. So beautiful appeared my death, knowing who I would then kiss. I died a thousand times before I died. Die before you die, said the prophet Muhammad. Have wings that feared ever touch the sun? I was born when all I once feared I could love. I was born when all I once feared I could love. And so we have this invitation to turn towards what we fear, to open our hearts here, to come closer to the beloved in however and whatever way we might conceive or sense or resonate with what that might mean. And of course, in the literalness of the holy day of Easter in the Christian tradition. Friday the 10th, Good Friday, the day of sacrifice, at least as we celebrated that day in our culture, different days in other places. Sacrifice and redemption. The offering up of our life to heal to transform. And Sunday, Easter Sunday, the miracle and mystery of life that is not bound by death, that re-emerges even in the face of all being lost. This image, this way of understanding points to something deep and beautiful. Even in death, what is most true does not die. And in the tradition of Judaism, which is my father's heritage, it's the time of Pesach, Passover, from the 8th to the 16th of April, remembering the leaving of Egypt following the plagues, moving, traveling from enslavement through hardship and privation and the remembering of that hardship by the eating of simple dry bread, matzos, and threw that into freedom. This journey of life that we all, in different ways, must undertake, no matter which tradition we come from or from no tradition. I was struck just looking up a little, because I wasn't. I, my father's grew up was raised Jewish, but I wasn't. He didn't really offer us that at all. But um, one thing that I read when I was just looking a little, because I wanted to mention it today, um, was that the tradition and the practice asks all Jewish people, and we could say maybe this asks all of us, but asks all Jews to see themselves as having left Egypt. And I'm not sure what that's meant to mean, but for me it evokes a sense of having left 
this place of enslavement. Having entered into the, the hardship, the sacrifice, the privation, privation as a journey to freedom. Understanding this is why we learn to let go, because it offers us something more, always something greater than what it is that we're asked to let go of. We might not see that at first, but this is the profound power and gift of letting go, of moving away from our comfortable, cocooned unconsciousness and habit into the sometimes stark and sometimes raw, but more essentially and fundamentally true experience of conscious embodied life. This is our journey always, not to somewhere else, but to where we are and where we have always been, but have not known ourselves to be, have not remembered ourselves to be. And as someone was saying in uh, one of the conversations today, this wish to go home. Of course, initially the sense of for someone who's not living in the country they come from or where their family are, required to stay in this place where they're safe, So just, uh, I think we had a little tech issue there. I'm not sure where I got muted, but I'll just backtrack a moment and hopefully uh, I'm not repeating too much. This sense of being, as someone was relating, the sense of being locked down apart from, in a different country from their family and how we feel like we'd want to go home, but we can't, to be far away from our loved ones and far away from familiar lands. This is hard for us. This is really difficult. And there's this way in which, of course, we are called here and we're also supported here to make our home in this moment, in this body, in this heart, mind, and our connection with life right now and right here. This practice that takes us more and more deeply and fully into the depth of our life. That what we perhaps miss and long for with our loved ones and our familiar lands is that sense of deep connection of familiarity and of trust that allows us to open more fully allows us to feel more deeply and it's that distance from openness that difference from our sensitivity i think that we miss so keenly and that we so gratefully receive in the presence of those who we love and those places that we feel connected to so it is hard to be apart from them. I'm not suggesting otherwise. Of course, that's true. And yet, of course, there is our deeper home. And in this time, we're engaged with the realities of life in its, in its potency, its power. I mentioned earlier about friends having a child, a baby, and the blessed sweetness of that. And also today, amongst us, some have mentioned the loss of dear family members due to the coronavirus or for other reasons, for other causes. And, and talking about particularly hearing about the loss of one's father from one of our community and the inability to be with them when they died or with, what their fam with one's family now. And I know, and I'm fortunate, my immediate family are all still alive. But whenever I've lost someone dear to me, I've always wanted most strongly to be with the others who love them. It's the natural thing and so painful that that's not possible for us at this time. And really important to hold that with kindness, to reach out, to seek support. Someone else referring to the loss of their younger sister from the virus also. And Others too, perhaps, that I haven't heard or aren't aware of. 
to make space in our hearts for that sorrow, that grief. So important to feel. There's a way in which grief itself, it kind of connects us to all of our losses, to all of our griefs. It's so deep in us. And it's not somehow that if we were practicing properly, we wouldn't be experiencing this. If we were equanimous, we wouldn't experience this. No, not at all. It's because we're open enough to let ourselves feel it that we feel it. And equanimity here is not that I don't feel deep grief or overwhelmed perhaps even by grief. It's that I don't imagine that somehow this shouldn't be happening. It's like, of course this would be happening now if my loved one has died or is dying or is simply just at risk and I cannot be close to them. As I shared with the, the person who was speaking about this, I was so deeply touched hearing of a friend of mine who's, friends of mine whose daughter was ill in a hospital in Guatemala while they were living in France and could not see her or be with her, at least not directly. But I think she's doing okay now, which I'm really glad to hear. But at the same time, that separation is so painful. And you know, the Buddha himself, when he heard of the death of his greatest disciples, Mahamogalana and Saraputra, when he heard that they had died, what's recorded, his response was, it's as if the moon and the stars had fallen from the sky. And it's like, I don't think he was just making a poetic metaphor. It felt like these great lights had gone out and he felt it deeply, it seems to me, and rightly and naturally. An awakened heart is a sensitive, tender one that cares deeply. And what we also notice with grief that makes it hard, that makes it not easy for us. You know, culturally, we understand that if someone is grieving, we don't expect them to be too functional. It kind of, it's expected and understood that we might not be able to do what we normally do for some time. One thing I would say, the journey of that is always particular. It is never according to what someone says it should or should not be. So if it is a journey that you're in at this time, trust what's true for you. It may be short or long. It may look one way or another. It may not have started as you imagined or continue as you expect. But whatever is, is what it is. And there isn't a right or a wrong way for it to happen. And one of the things that happens with deep grief and loss is that it undoes us. It kind of unmakes us. We're constructed and woven out of our relationships and our sense of who we are is born of and through the connections we have. And in the loss of a loved one, a dear one to us, we do not lose the connection that we had. It's still there. As many of you, I think, will know. What we lose is the possibility of renewing, deepening, continuing and developing that. And as such, we don't quite know where we are or sometimes who we are in our deeper grieving, in our deeper loss. And it's important that we give ourselves space for that and time as much as is needed. And we reach out and seek support from friends or from the natural world if we find that nourishing or from whatever we connect with. And what also happens with this process of loss and of grief that is so connected with times of danger, with times of death, is we're also coming into contact with, grief connects us with all the losses of our life. And all the grief in our life. It's not, we can't separate it out or package it. It comes together and, and it brings us into the deeper grief, grief of our heart, which we may or may not have been fully conscious of. 
which is the grief that we carry at the loss of contact, of conscious connection with the depths of our truth, the breadth of our human possibility and our awakened nature. That the loss of contact with this is our deepest and most grievous loss. And those people we most love, we know something of our awakened heart and their presence when our heart is open. And we see them as the conduit to it, which they can be. Or the people from whom we learnt about love and how precious and blessed it is that we've learnt about that and been sh- had that shared with us from others. And this deeper loss of contact or conscious connection does not mean that we have actually lost contact in absolute terms. We've simply turned away, unconsciously, unintending. We find ourselves looking in the wrong direction or in the the wrong way. Not wrong in a bad or judging way, but just in the way that doesn't actually show, following the path that doesn't actually reveal what it is that we're called and drawn to in the depths of our heart, that is at the core and the heart of all spiritual traditions and deep human longings that don't always show in the form of spiritual traditions, but just our calling to creative sharing and blessing of life and each other with what we wish to bring forth. And this possibility, this depth of our awakened nature, our deepest truth and the breath of what it makes possible for us. This is not somewhere distant. This is not somewhere to be found other than where we are, other than what is already true and already here and has always been so. I'd like to share another poem by Rumi. He says, I have lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons, knocking on a door. It opens. I've been knocking from the inside. We are already unshakably and unstoppably that which we are and inseparably a part of all that is. Nothing we do or say can bring us closer. Nothing we can do or say takes us further away. This, that the awakened teachings of the wise beings of our world have pointed to, have shared with us through the generations from past and in the present. This is here. This timeless, blessed, and holy time, the sacred place of right here, right now. In this place and no other. We can open to and know for ourselves the awakened heart of of love and wisdom. And for this, we engage in our practice. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments together.
And so may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to know the, the true depths of what is holy, what is blessed, what is here and now, awakened, immediate, and simply just this. For our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings, may we and all beings come to abide in this that we are, in this where we are, that is blessed, that is holy, that is free and full and empty. <laughs> 